Good evening, everyone. Congratulations. Made it through the first day. It's a great accomplishment. It is, um, this is against the stream of everything that we usually do. So it's not a, it's not, it seems so simple, but as you can see, you sit down doing this simple activity and you walk doing the simple, the most simple activity of walking. And the way I think of it, all hell breaks loose. Um, And I had the good fortune of meeting, I guess, a quarter of you today in, uh, in the groups. And I so appreciated hearing about your practice and the fact that you were staying with the practice uh, so much because most of what you were reporting was um, a mind that was out of control, chattering, uh, lots of frustration about uh, how unmanageable your thoughts were. Any of you relate to that? Your bodies were hurting, aching, burning, all the whole litany of sensations, stabbing, burning, itching, tingling, squeezing, searing. No, nobody described that. But it was not a pretty picture. I actually wrote down a list of some of what was described. Uh, A lot of exhaustion, frustration, Someone had a great, a tremendous revelation that their mind does incessant planning. And that uh, the planning seemed to be more pleasant than reality being here. And in many cases that's true. That our, and our planning is often uh, as a way of not feeling reality. But unfortunately it creates a condition in our minds of of a lot of dependency on getting away from here. And as we pointed out last night and as we did all day today, there's really only here. This is really the only reality. This is where our life is. And what we call the present moment, even though there's really no present moment. There's no play. You can't really find the present moment. It's a word that we use. But reality kind of points to this sense of being here and this is really all there is and yet our mind and I think most of you notice this today our mind turns the present moment the only place that we live into uh, into some place that we're just kind of passing through on our way to something better or it becomes very difficult uh, an obstacle the enemy so that's not easy to stop and actually feel reality when our life has been, uh, as one poet put it, an endless running from silence. So the teachings say, stop, and as the poet Rumi says, die. He says, your old life was an endless running from silence. Slide out the side and die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died in the best way. And then he ends the poem by saying, the speechless full moon comes out now. Just stop the struggle for a moment. Because it is the promise of awakening that when we stop trying to run away from this moment by running after, that we sit right in the middle of it all that we discover a, uh, a natural peace. It's not something that gets created. So that the great um, Tibetan master, Noshul Ken Rinpoche, said, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the... Like the uh, relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of, of samsara, rest and natural great peace. It's a reminder that if we could simply stop our struggle, we could simply learn how to be here 
in the middle of it all, that there, we have within us as, as uh, who was it who said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. We have something in us that's always okay, just here. And we tend to realize it when we, if we can get used to being here. So, so many difficulties on the first day, and I know that many of you planned your escape. And many of you probably asked the question, why did I come here? Am I just making this up or did... And this is a, this, these questions, this doubt that very easily arises in our mind, it arises because we love ourselves and we all want to be happy. We want relief in the worst way. But from, you could say, from beginningless time, the way that all of us have sought relief is by, um, by leaving is by abandoning ourselves, becoming disembodied, living in our imagination of the past, our imagination of the future, living in the planning mind. And unfortunately, even though it's so natural to, to wonder, why am I here? What am I doing? And this is just a way of not... Want, not, not feel, it's because we're not comfortable even though that's an innocent reaction, are all of the ways, all of our methods for finding relief have mostly in our life increased our dis-ease. So in the Buddha's teaching, based on what he taught is what he discovered through his own experience. And remember last night we had the whole conversation about being... Just because you took refuge, it didn't mean you were uh, becoming a Buddhist. And I, I said the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. There was no such thing as Buddhism uh, until the 19th century, really. Buddhism, it became an ism. As a, it's more of a colonial creation. What, it, what there was were the teachings of the Buddha. And at the time of the Buddha, there was this person's teachings and that person's teachings. And, and, and the Buddha, because of his own discoveries, came up with some teachings. And they were, there was such a ring of truth. And people, because people were invited not to believe any of the teachings, they were invited to, to use their own observing power, their own capacity to be aware, to see for themselves what was true. And so there was nothing about adopting beliefs. There was no joining a religion. It was, it was simply use your, use your mind that you have this capacity to see for yourself what is it that, um, that, what is it that makes you suffer so much and what is it that brings relief. And then... Um, basically said, don't believe anything I say. Don't believe anything until you've tested it out yourself. So what we're doing here is we're testing it out. And what the Buddha said to be tested, in fact, that often when he would give a sutra, he would say to be seen here and now. So you don't have to go very far to find, uh, to find the truth, to see whether something's true. And today, not only did you possibly have a difficult time, but you, ha- but you had insight. You had a lot of insight. You may not have known it as insight. But when you experienced a hard time, when you experienced your mind not doing what you wanted, when you didn't get what you want and you, and you, uh, and you got what you didn't want, when you felt uh, pain, when you felt frustration, when you felt anything that was hard to bear. Did any of you have any of those things today? You experienced in real time what the Buddha called the first noble truth. 
that if you are born, if you come into this world, as I often like to say, and I borrowed this from the Wiley's Dictionary, the Wiley's Dictionary uh, translates birth as the leading cause of death. <laughs> but I adapted a little bit to my own, uh, for my own uses, and I said, if you are born, being born is the leading cause of stress. It's the leading cause of having to experience things that are difficult to bear. The traditional list that the Buddha offered was that there is pain in being born, there's pain in being ill, there's pain in being um, in aging, there's pain in dying, there's pain in not getting what you want, pain in not wanting what you get, there's pain in uh, being separated from what you hold near and dear, uh, there's grief, there's lamentation, there's sorrow, there's all of that. If you are born, this is the leading cause of all those things. And he had a particular prescription. He was sometimes called the great physician. And he put his teachings in, term, in, in medical terms. He had a diagnosis. The diagnosis is this is the way it is in life. That if you're born, it's not weird if you have troubles. It's really how it is. This is not... So does that seem to describe your day? Things hard to bear. This is how it is. So his, this was the diagnosis and his prescription was this must be um, experienced. This must be welcomed. This must be open to. And then the... the then there's the cure, the result is one can say, I have, I have opened to life as it has presented itself. I have opened to the truth of what he called dukkha. Dukkha is sometimes translated as suffering, but it's much more nuanced. It's much more related to that which is hard to bear, stress, unsatisfactoriness, queasiness, unreliability, all kinds of experiences that every person who was born has. And you probably had many, many different times today. But it's especially acute, of course, on the first day of the retreat. And especially the first day of the retreat, it's, it's not just hard to bear because it's, these are difficulties, but it's hard to bear because our minds are untrained. They are not designed, they are not, they are not conditioned, they don't, do not have the habit of welcoming of opening to, of allowing. What do they have the habit of doing? They have the habit of, we have the habit of becoming uh, disembodied, completely leaving, uh, at least imagining that we're leaving the present moment. Nobody's ever really left the present moment. We only imagine that we did. But the habit is to enter into our, uh, as Will calls it thought worlds, to just get lost in thought. We're taught to then think about whatever it is that's going on. We're taught to strategize about it. And this is all, it's all a natural, we all love ourselves, so we want to figure out, how can I deal with this misery that I'm having today? I signed up for this thinking that I was going to get enlightened, and, and I'm the only one here who can't meditate. Everybody else seems so calm. It's so beautiful to see the groups. Everyone, you can almost feel a palpable relief when, when people in the group hear that the next person's having the same issue. And there's nodding and there's, there's a sense of, oh, we're all experiencing this. But we're not, and so that's partly the beginning of learning how to open to it. And that's the message again and again. The prescription for dealing with stress is to open to it. Otherwise, our life becomes this endless running from silence, this endless search for the future, for a future experience, associating our well-being with the future, which never arrives because time is always now. 
and associating our happiness with what happens next, what does that do to what's happening now? It makes it harder to bear. So even though it's really natural to look forward to the end of the sitting or the end of the day or to the Dharma talk or in most cases in the, uh, on retreat, the, the big thing is the, is the meal. Wouldn't you know it, I spread these out and now I can't find the one I was looking for. Give it one more moment. Here we go. This is from the Wall Street Journal from many years ago. My father sent this to me. He says, hey guru, I've wondered what what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. Well, at sunrise I get up, eat a handful of parched corn, and then start meditating. And then at noon I eat another handful of parched corn, and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, (laughs) french fries, hot dogs, banana splits, pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska, Twinkies. This is really dated. Espresso. So this is the... This is what our our mind does, is it it goes out of itself in search and turns the present moment into a, a place that's just not possible to find happiness. At least our mind convinces us that um, the best is yet to come. It's not here. And even though the meal does give us relief and the gong going off does give us relief, we don't realize that what's really given us relief is the end of that trance of waiting, of looking forward, of being caught in that state of suspended happiness, suspended well-being. So on the retreat, this is, I didn't actually intend to talk about this, on the retreat, we start to notice our mind doing that. So we're not simply a slave to whatever our mind says will make us happy. We notice that our mind is looking forward to something, hoping for something to happen, straining to make something happen in our practice. And instead of making that, whatever that object, whatever that end goal real, we simply notice that, that whatever that end goal is, and we let our mind open a little bit and notice also that state, what it's like to feel a state of waiting or wanting or hoping or expecting or straining. And what we often discover is that the underlying state that we're actually practicing in that moment of fantasy, we're practicing a certain kind of contracted state. We're practicing a certain uh, uh, state of being um, hostage. And if you're able to, if you're able to pay attention to that feeling of, if you're able to see your mind doing that and feel what it's like to be trying to make something happen or trying to get somewhere, if you can feel it and meet it with attention, which is what we're training in, what we're actively training in learning how to pay attention until the point where it becomes natural, where we can actually simply be aware rather than what may feel like the first day, more like uh, hard labor, more like heavy lifting, more like doing awareness. But it's all in the service of then being able to be aware of the movements of your mind and not have to be so caught up in them. So this is just an invitation to start noticing all the ways that we innocently but habitually hold ourselves hostage keep ourselves from being happy now and being well now. And all that comes because we want to be happy. The same thing was the Buddha. I want to be happy. I want, re- I want relief. But he saw, he saw a very interesting thing that, uh, 
that really turned his mind uh, toward that quality of, of opening to, of letting go, is he saw that um, everything that he tended to search for, for relief, everything he used uh, was all the pleasures that he searched for, they seemed to have a very short um, shelf life. They were very, the pleasure of them was very fleeting. The relief was, definitely felt a lot of relief. All the different kinds of pleasures. Um, but that relief would be short and it would leave a little, a little feeling of what he called later anicca dukkha, a feeling of the, a little pain that comes from things being uh, in a state of constant change. A little unsatisfactoriness. And not only that, but that feeling of, of, of loss, of the end of something, and then having followed and practiced going out in search for that something to find relief, left in its wake the desire for more. And it just seemed to build. It built this, um, this pattern that we're all very well trained in, in what's called, what we can see in real time, what's called samsara. Samsara is uh, it's loosely translated as endless wandering. It's this cycle of continually being born into a drama of going somewhere, getting something, and then getting it, and then losing it, and then getting it again, going after it again. And there's no real rest in it. So this is why we come on retreat and train our attention. First and foremost, because we truly want to be happy. And all the strategies of going out of ourselves, getting lost, have just made us more unhappy. So instead, his recommendation is, stay here, open to your experience. Now, if we're not able to open to our experience of pain, which most of us aren't at the beginning, we need some tools we need some training. We, we have this capacity in us. One of the very hopeful things about the teachings is that we are trainable. That our minds, we're not just stuck with these weak minds that can't, that can't pay attention, that can't work with things. We have within us this capacity to have very, very stable, um, continuous attention that can sit right in the middle of what are called the joys and the sorrows and, and remain uh, balanced and remain at peace, in fact, regardless of the circumstances. So this is an opportunity for me to share very specific teachings that the Buddha shared about happiness because that's universal desire. We all want to be happy we, what also binds us is none of us wants to suffer. But our, our understanding of what happiness is or what a reliable happiness is, is, is very limited. And so the Buddha clarified that basically two kinds of happiness. And that you can see this, uh, the way it operates on the retreat, you can see it in your life. Two kinds of happiness. There's the happiness that comes, uh, that depends on things being the way you want them to be. Depends on conditions. When you get what you want, when you get rid of what you don't want, when you taste something wonderful, when you smell something wonderful, when you, when you feel great in your body, when you're with a friend and you're looking into the eyes of your beloved, whatever it might be, this is, this is all kinds of amazing pleasures that we can have as human beings. And there's great happiness in that. But that happiness depends on that situation being the way it is. And when the situation is like that, yes, we're very happy. But when that situation is not like that, we tend to not be as happy. And, and if we make that kind of happiness our devotion, have that be what we mostly, um, our, our number one source of happiness, the Buddha called this uh, misplaced faith. We're putting our faith in something that actually doesn't make us truly happy, that only gives us this temporary happiness that leaves in its wake all that cycle that I talked about before, that cycle of endlessly um, needing more, what's next. 
And so the Buddha actually called worldly happiness as wonderful as it is, conventional happiness, called it lokiya sukha, worldly or conventional happiness. He also called it the happiness of bondage, happiness of slavery. So it's, there's a, there's the pleasure in it, but there's also a danger in it because we get, we get swept away in it and, and unfortunately it doesn't make anybody reliably happy. But he, he contrasted that with what he called lokutra sukha. Lokutra means uh, unstuck. It means the happiness of freedom, unstuck from the world, be, a happiness that doesn't depend on how things are. So that when I talk about being able to sit in the middle of the joys and the sorrows, we're talking about a happiness, a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on whether your body hurts, your mind is busy, uh, doesn't depend on, on getting whether you get what you want or want what you get. It doesn't depend on circumstances. And that is something that every single moment of of mindful attention, of just being, just being naturally aware, simply aware, every single moment like that, just met, just the way it is, is a moment that is, um, and it could be extremely painful, but when we're mindful of it, we're not, we're not fighting with it. We're not trying to get something else, we're not pushing away. We're not spacing out and, and becoming disembodied. We're just with things, just as they are. So see if you can find something unpleasant in your experience right now. <laughs> That's a strange request. Can you find something unpleasant in your physical or your... Mo- see for a moment, if you just experience that, just know it's there. And don't try to do anything about it and don't try to undo it. Just feel that unpleasant quality. It's not a project. It's just meeting life the way it is. And notice in that moment of just being with how the the mental suffering part, at least for that moment, diminishes. So it may not seem like much in a moment of, of just noticing that you're actually planting a little seed of freedom. You're planting a little seed of this happiness that doesn't depend on conditions being a certain way. Now, if you're here to find the first kind of happiness, you're going to be very disappointed at Spirit Rock. On the other hand, if you are here to find the to uh, find the happiness that doesn't depend so much on pleasant conditions, you'll you'll do a great job here. Now we're all trained at mostly looking for the first one, so we just kick and scream when something unpleasant comes, and so we want to be really merciful to ourselves to see all our strategies for trying to get away from things. But hopefully, we'll we keep training in this simple mindful attention. Mindful attention is simply not thinking about what's present. And you can tell that already. Just being with is not thinking about it. It's not analytic. It's not, uh, it's not even reflecting on it. It's simply knowing this is what's happening and being able to clearly comprehend it so that you can say, yes, this is this is a feeling of, of sadness, or this is a contraction, this is aching. Ah, aching. So we can say, as one of our teachers, Adzhan Sumedho, says, aching is like this. That's the quality of attention that doesn't interfere with what's happening. It doesn't have an agenda. And because it's not interfering and it doesn't have an agenda, it's not adding any reactivity, any tension to what's there. So this leads to what the Buddha discovered uh, as he opened to the experience of, of, um, of dukkha or that which is hard to bear. He saw that what turns the basic 
difficulties of being in a being born all the things that come with our life what turns it into mental suffering what turns it into that endless um, that endless search that endless uh, that that restlessness and that agitation it turns it into this constant doubt about life and this constant wanting what I don't have and then it, it, what turns it into exhaustion what turns it into the the mental state of the, all the hindrances, the, all that we notice in our practice, what feeds the, the, the torments of our mind is this chronic tendency to, of wanting things to be different than the way they are. This he called the, the second noble truth, that, that what, um, what causes mental suffering what turns the basic dukkha into, into mental suffering is this chronic tendency of mind he called tanha, or craving. And that craving, that, that feeling that I need, I want, I've got to have, I've got to become, it expresses itself as that, that endless uh, fantasizing mind, that planning mind. That's, that, you know, of course, some planning is very appropriate and useful in our lives. But a lot of it is simply a habit of mind to try to get somewhere else other than where we are. And so it expresses itself as the desire for pleasures. It expresses itself as the uh, endless desire to become someone, to get somewhere. And it expresses itself in the, in the aversive way as wanting things to stop, wanting things to end. And it, the extreme version of that is the suicidal impulse. And, we, and our minds can get very much drawn into this, uh, this craving for existence and more and craving for non-existence. And unfortunately, this movement of mind toward and away from things has never made anybody happy. It's only kept us bound up in, a, in that wheel of samsara, that wheel of endless wandering. And a lot of it is just because we can't, uh, we haven't been able to accommodate the way things are. We haven't been able to accommodate the fact that um, that uh, we are born, that that we will die. I mean, that may be what it comes down to. We don't want to die. We don't want we, what we we don't want to have to give up what we have and. Um, and that's what, what happened to the Buddha is he, he saw it very clearly. At age 29, he saw, yes, they, somebody his own age was quite ill. And he said, yes, that, that's going to happen to me. And, and then he saw somebody who was really, really old. and said, I'm lucky that'll happen to me. I'll live a long life. But then he saw, that, then he saw a corpse. He said, hmm, that's going to happen to me too. And it's said that his uh, pride in being young just <laughs> died at that moment. It ended at that moment. His pride in being healthy even ended. So much pride around our health when it's not so reliable. And his pride in life. He knew that that's just the nature of things, to, to die. And that uh, I always think of all, I guess there's close to 7 billion of us now, and we will all be replaced within 100 years. Our replacements are kind of waiting in the wings. Now, we, there's a tendency when we talk this openly about the way things are to, to get a little queasy. Any of you feel that? But this is how it is. This is not weird. But part of the second noble truth, part of that drive to to get away from the truth to, that keeps us in that state of perpetual wanting, it, um, I think it's best, it's explained very beautifully in this simple story about uh, a, a farmer and the Buddha. Where he says, once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, now, even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. 
Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't quite turning out the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So all of that, all of that um, avoidance of the truth by running after or running away from or trying to shut things out, trying to stop our mind, uh, has just made us um, miserable. It's actually created so much reactivity in our mind that the tension of that reactivity has just been the the, it has to have a relief, a release valve, and it releases through this constant, this constant chatter in our mind. And the constant chatter in our mind makes us experience being almost out of our bodies, and our bodies then start crying out for attention by being tense, being held in that sense of, of. I'm not here, you're not here, you're not taking care of me. You're lost in, in some kind of imagination of somewhere else. And our bodies just start to, to stop, they stop thriving. Because we lose a sense of reality, which is so vital. So different from the past and the future, uh, which are, are just mental. And then we come on retreat and you just, you get to, to see the fruit of, of what we have innocently practiced. What, and it's, <laughs> and one of my teachers said at the, at the beginning, insight is usually bad news. <laughs> and as Bhante Gunaratna says, somewhere in the process of meditation, it doesn't take long on an intensive retreat. You will come face to face with the sudden realization that you're completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you never noticed. But really, this is such good news in the long run. And... The good news is expressed beautifully by this passage from uh, a monk named Francois Fenelon from the year 1651. So the same issues were going on there. As he puts it, as light increases, and what we're doing is we're bringing the light of attention to our experience. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we harbored such things. A few people in the groups today said they saw some things about themselves they weren't so happy with. We never could have believed that we harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. This is from Pesha Joyce Gertler. Finally on my way to yes... I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. 
all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. So another reminder, the cure for our difficulties is to is in them, is to feel them. So the Buddha not only diagnosed that the cause of our mental, our increasing mental stress, mental suffering, was this t- habit of of being in a state of craving and wanting and aversion. But he had a prescription for um, for dealing with this prescription. And this, his prescription was to, as it was classically written, abandon the cause, which means let go. Let go of this tight, demanding, craving mind. Let go of this tight fist of grasping. Let be. Let your life be, at least for the purpose of freedom, just as it is. Just meet it as it is. It doesn't mean that you won't do everything you can to live a healthy life and to live, ha- have a healthy world. But it does not help you or the world to be in a constant state of craving, of tension, of hope, of expectation. But the only way that we can care for ourselves and our world is with, a, with vitality, with well-being, with ease of being, with balance. So let go. As one of our lineage teachers, Ajahn Chah, put it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. It doesn't mean the world comes to an end. It means your fight with the world. And this is fulfilled every moment. That abandoning the cause of suffering is fulfilled every moment that we open to it. That we just notice, oh, this is breathing in, this is breathing out, this is walking. Because that moment of noticing is a moment free of grabbing, free of pushing away, free of spacing out and living in virtual reality. Notice again, what's it like when you're simply mindful right now? Even though you may be tired and maybe even waiting for this to be over, waiting for bed, notice that for a moment. And just notice whatever that feeling is. And in that instant, I have some confidence that your struggle will end for that moment. So you will see the wanting mind come up again and again. And so we use it in our practice. We put everything to good use. I call the practice we're doing equal opportunity mindfulness because everything becomes the reminder of, our, of letting go. Everything becomes the reminder of allowing. Even those states that keep us all bound up and tight, when you notice them, even those become, as one teacher called it, the manure of, of bodhi, the, the the fertilizer of our awakening. And you will notice all of, all, all of your um, searching because we've, we've all been trained in a consumer culture. As Sogyal Rinpoche says, that we've been trained in a, a consumer culture that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. We're taught from day one, as Bo Lozoff says, to try to keep up with the Joneses. He also says that it's time that we saw that the Joneses are not happy. We're all taught to, as the Dalai Lama says, we're taught to topple forward into the imagined future. As he says, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he says, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he, re- he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. 
The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. (laughs) This is the habit of mind that we will use as part of our practice. But I have so much confidence that if we keep noticing these different movements, that everything that we notice, all these different ways of trying to escape, become the cause of our letting go. They become our path. The whole path is really simply noticing what gets in the way of us being, being present and just meeting it with mercy, kindness, and, and mindful attention. So the Buddha didn't stop with, uh, with the importance of applying the tools of, of meditative practice to both open to the truth of our condition, whatever it may be in any given moment, not just as a philosophical idea, but as a whatever your living reality is, whatever version of things that are hard to bear, to open to it. This is why we train, is to be able to to not fight so much with what's happening. And then he, we use the same tool to uh, abandon the cause, to let go in real time. It's funny, whenever I talk about the second noble truth, I often think of myself at those times, uh, the most recent time that I remember is when I was, uh, I was traveling to uh, home from leading a retreat in Canada. And I got stopped by the airport security person because I was trying, I had, a, I had, uh, I had talked to all the people in line to, to let me go ahead because I was late for my flight due to something that had happened in, at the ticket counter. No fault of mine. And the people had all agreed to let me go, but the, the security guard wouldn't let me through. It started giving me trouble. And, and I immediately got furious because he was just pulling a power trip on me. And I, I just felt the pain of that. I felt the, so this was insight into the first noble truth. This is dukkha. And clearly, the, the second noble truth was obvious. The cause of it was I wanted the situation to be different than the way it was. And at first, I just, I just felt venomous. And I even, under my breath, and he happened to see the mouthing of the swear words that I called him. <laughs> And that didn't make him any more open to me. <laughs> but when I, once I noticed that the cause of suffering and just felt that, felt that, that demand that my heart, my mind was making that things be other than they are, there was a, um, there was, as is true with anything we pay attention to, it revealed itself as, a, as just a changing mood as a changing condition. It was like a a massive weather front, a storm that had passed through my mind and body. And there was in that moment uh, a cessation. There was the end of that state of craving, that state of demanding things to be different than they were. And I could say at that moment that I had realized, at least in that one little vignette, I had realized what the Buddha described as the third noble truth. And what you can, with each thing that you sit with, each mood, each sensation that you sit with, and allow the reactivity in your mind to, to ease. You may still have the discomfort. I still had the discomfort of then still having to run to my flight. And I've, I did make the flight, for anybody that's curious. But the suffering of, of that being in that state of demand and craving, it, it faded. So this is what the, the hopeful teaching of the Buddha is, that there is an end to craving. There's an end to the mental suffering. That it's possible to, to just meet our situation just as it is and be free, even, even though we may miss the flight. And just to fill in the, the last part, I had that little vignette was all four noble truths. The truth, this is hard. Second one, I want it to be different. 
Third, there's an end to it. The fourth, there's a path. The path is to stay aware, is to, is to um, be right in the middle of that situation. And so that is, a, in some ways, I'm describing this because the whole of our practice is trying to create an inner condition, try, not create it, but trying to recover an inner condition of being able to, um, to meet life not in some kind of highfalutin, transcendent way, but in a, in a natural way, in a, a natural way of being with the, fact, the facts of the situation. And I'd like to read a little story. It takes a few minutes, but it's a story about the Dalai Lama. And to me, it represents his modeling of just meeting life as it is. To me, it speaks of the end of suffering and the potential of just, just connecting with, with how things are. This is a story about a, the former mayor of Salt Lake City, Utah, who traveled to, I'll just read it. Um, this was written after the Sandy Hook um, massacre. So it was very raw period for, for many people. One by one last week, the tiny bodies of 20 children were laid to rest as well as the adult heroes who died trying to protect them. We won't soon forget Sandy Hook sh- school shootings. The pain runs straight to our nation's marrow. The process of mourning these victims of unspeakable violence stretches so far out and for so long. How to begin to understand such grief whether in your own life or collectively as a citizen of this troubled country. In 1997, I traveled to Dharamsala, India. My former wife, Kathy, and my sister-in-law, Mary Lee, had grown close to the Tibetan community that had, had resettled in Utah. Perhaps overly impressed with my status as former Salt Lake City mayor, the Tibetans had arranged for us to meet with the Dalai Lama and to invite him to Utah. He... I looked forward to meeting His Holiness, much like any lucky tourist would. I sought no great religious or transformative experience. I admired the Dalai Lama's history as an expatriate from communist China and his reputation as a man of peace. I carried letters from Governor Mike Levitt and business leaders and other documents to formally invite the great leader to Utah. I had no idea how deeply spiritual our visit would become. The meeting with His Holiness would rank as one of the most emotional, treasured moments of my life, along with the births of my children, climbing high mountain peaks, and other deeply personal experiences. As we ambled along the streets of Dharamsala the morning of our appointment with His Holiness, we met by sheer coincidence a Utah couple. They had stayed for several days hoping for some way to meet with the Dalai Lama. We offered to see if they might join us. After relaying passport numbers and other security information, they were granted permission to come along. We entered the Dalai Lama's residence, each holding a white Buddhist blessing scarf. He placed the scarves around our necks and uttered a few blessing words. We sat on comfortable couches with the holy man, surrounded by a group of muscular monks. I surmised they were a security detachment. The Dalai Lama opened with small talk, his wit and iconic smile bringing resonant laughter from the guards, a group of designated laughers, I thought, with some amusement. We formally invited him to Utah. Then suddenly, the formality dissolved. Looking intently at the couple that had joined us that morning, and with no visible cue from anyone, he said, You are sad. Our new friends broke down. Through gentle sobs, they explained their young son had recently committed suicide. A pause hung in the air. The Dalai Lama simply waited and waited. As we muffled sobs, His Holiness slid across the couch and reached for the couple's faces. Grasping their cheeks, he pulled their faces next to his. He held them for perhaps a minute, an eternity for such an intimacy. And then he said softly, simply, sad, sad. He offered no other words, no assurances of heaven as we Westerners have come to expect when dissecting death. 
He explained nothing. There was no utterance of time heals, no niceties, God needs him elsewhere, nothing. The tears ceased. And then it was time to leave. This is the this is the promise of our practice that we simply meet nothing extra, nothing added. And it's so rare in our life to meet our experience unfiltered. To experience reality in its most intimate way. Just sad or just aching or burning or tired or excited. So the third truth there is an end to our suffering that grows out of reactivity that comes from running from the truth of things. And this, the prescription for this um, diagnosis that there is an end is this must be realized. And this must be realized in real time, not just as an idea, something that comes from learning how to just be with yourself. Finally, there's a, the fourth truth. There is a path, and that's what we're walking here. And we're training our attention first to, to have our mind in the same location as our body. We're developing the conditions that lead to a calm abiding, to some concentration. But this is all in behalf of being able to then sit in the middle of and meet whatever presents itself um, without reactivity so that we don't have to keep adding to the, the basic stress that all of us meet. And we can then see with clear perception how life is, that everything that arises passes away. That's really the only difference between a Buddha and an ordinary person is a Buddha knows this. Whatever arises passes away. And so we can then tolerate the whole range of experiences. So in that spirit, I'd like to end with uh, a poem from a Tibetan Lama named Gendon Rinpoche called uh, Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body or your mind has no ultimate importance at all, no real importance at all, and has little reality whatsoever. It has momentary reality. Why identify with and become so attached to it, fight with it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow these experiences to happen on their own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. So don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. 
Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. There's nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Emaho. Everything happens on its own. So let's just, no need to change your posture. Let's just remain silent for a moment. May all beings realize the liberating power of mindful awareness. May all beings realize the cessation of suffering. May all beings live with ease. Thank you all for your attention. Again, congratulations for making it through the first day. We have now a half hour for... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.